Hey everyone, my name is Mike Connors. I'm an assistant news editor for the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus, serving the community since 1890. And this is the official podcast for the news section of the Collegian called the Collegian News Hour. We're recording today's episode on Monday, March 25th. But this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released at 8 o'clock every Tuesday morning on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So here in the studio with me to recap the stories we've covered in the past few weeks are the rest of the news team, if you want to introduce yourself. I'm Irina Kostake. I'm Catherine Eston. I'm Alvin Bienza. I'm Will Malice. And I'm Abby Sherpentier. All right, so we have... uh, a decent amount of things to talk about this week. Let's go to the first story. Yesterday, Alvin and I went to a uh, town hall in Northampton where Senator Ed Markey and Representative Jim McGovern held a uh, town hall over the Green New Deal. Senator Markey uh, is the Senate sponsor to the resolution. It's a non-binding resolution. It's about like 14 pages long. It doesn't include any specific uh, policies or legislative initiatives, but it is overall a uh, referendum on combating climate change, I would say. So Alvin and I went to this yesterday. Um, A few key things that happened. It was basically just a um, conversation between um, the two congressmen and um, the audience members where they discussed the Green New Deal. Um, So I guess this can't be passed in the current Congress because the Senate um, is controlled by majority Republicans. Um, But how effective do you guys think these town halls in starting a conversation about something like climate change? I think it is pretty effective. Um, it's effective, but it's also a little too safe. And so one of the things that I noticed that during the during the um, the conversation is that Nor- it was in the city of Northampton, which is extremely liberal, like very, 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 very progressive liberal. Um, and it was almost as if you have two progressive liberals like Jake McGovern and Ed Markey speaking to a town full of, you know, majority white, majority progressive liberals. And it was almost like I supported the Green New Deal. The new, yeah, the, yeah, the, um, the, yeah, the Green New Deal. I supported that, but I felt as if they were having a conversation with people who already knew the merits of it. And I would like them to have that conversation with people um, who may not have not known enough about the Green New Deal. So, like, bring that conversation to areas where they may not understand what it is. They may have some misunderstandings about climate change and the science behind that. They may not know about the logistics of this this deal and kind of fire them up and energize them up. Because Northampton is a very, um, it's in terms of voter population it's very energized base that's a very progressively energized space you're never going to see people like northampton say oh we support trump like they're going to support people like aoc they're going to support very uh left-wing peoples and left-wing agendas so kind of bringing that conversation to more moderate places or even a little bit more conservative places i feel like would have been better do you think that if they were to bring it to some place that was more diverse than northampton it would have been a different event alvin like racially diverse or politically diverse either um, I mean, th- th- that's that's a good question because that was um, one of the the points that um, a constituent brought up. And so I remember he said something along the lines of, you know, if you're going to have the Green New Deal, then you're going to have to find out ways to that it can support ca- uh, low-income communities and communities of color. And even um, McGovern and Markey even um, spoke on the merits behind that. Um, and, and so when, when they spoke, when they said something along the lines of that, they said that this is a bill that is going to help and support everybody. And so bringing those, that conversation to different communities 
I feel like they're going to at least see it as, okay, this is going to be something that benefits us um, particularly um, with, with the Green New Deal. And, and part of the Green New Deal is being able to make sure that our planet doesn't die by 2030 because they, they said that was the, that was the marker. Um, just essentially making sure that we're not in this um, code red kind of situation. Um, so so in, in, in those code red situations, usually those are the communities that are going to get hurt the most. So moving on, another question that I had about this is uh, what, what happens to people who are already working in fossil fuel industries, in the oil and gas industries? Um, do, does there have to be any training procedures spelled out in the Green New Deal um, once there are um, actual concrete policy and, and, and you know, legislative initiatives in um, like a bill in the future that, uh, that would transition these people to work in more renewable forms of energy? I think there definitely should be. I think that's one of the toughest issues about climate change in general. If you look at like the 2016 election, um, part of the reason that Trump won is because like Hillary Clinton and the Democrats weren't able to communicate effectively enough to those people where Trump kind of was able to uh, kind of address their concerns. Um, I covered in a, a talk last year from uh, a guy who was part of like a coal mining family. And he kind of mentioned that um, a lot of people in those types of jobs, like that's their livelihood. And then to have like people come in who say like, like, oh, you know, your jobs are, you know, hurting the environment. Um, it can be like very like scary to them. And it, comes off almost as righteous, even if it, you know, might be the right choice. So um, I think Democrats should try and address that issue. Yeah, I actually have um, something kind of interesting to input there. So the town I'm from, it's in uh, Southeast Mass, uh, Somerset, Massachusetts. It had the last coal power plant in Massachusetts, and that just closed down. Uh, it would have been in 2017, uh, and they just knocked down the coal plant. You know, it's been a location for coal for the past century. Um, and by the time I was growing up, it was less so, you know, they had already closed one of the other plants in town. Um, but now no longer having coal power in Massachusetts, I think it's a sign that we can change things. But it's very important for us to be cognizant uh, that it's not necessarily the same in other areas where coal really does still dominate local economies. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think I'd want to see all of that becoming specific amendments to this particular bill because I think it would be very quick. We see a lot of the time bills in D.C. It seems like they add, you know, 5,000 amendments and then everyone has one amendment they want to vote against, so they vote against the entire bill. Uh, so I'd rather see that kind of, you know, after this is passed, go back and then say, okay, well, let's deal with all the small things now. Let's move on to the second article. Alvin, you went to an event with Tarana Burke. Uh, she was the Me Too, one of the Me Too movement founders. So mm -hmm. tell I us went. about that. I went to the event along with my translation editor, um, Rebecca Duke Weisenberg. And so the event was really interesting. I, I was on photo with that as well. Uh, so I made sure to get really dynamic and interesting shots. And, and one of the things I noticed is that uh, Tarana Burke, m me looking at her as, as a photographer and also a journalist, like she's a very well composed, very dynamic uh, woman who definitely spoke about this very dark and horrific issue in a very she she spoke about it in in a, in a very uh, she spoke on it in, in such a normalized way and and so 
to nor nor to speak on an issue that's so dark and so horrific and to speak about it in, in, in such an open way, whereas in, it becomes a conversation and a very candid conversation on, okay, let's get our hands dirty and try to solve this issue on why we're seeing a extremely disproportional rate between, you know, the number of girls who are sexually assaulted um, who are girls of color versus, you know, white girls. Let's talk about, you know, the issue around rape culture. Let's talk about the issue around calling you know, young girls like these very, very terrible names, like the S word and the W word is, is that I, I think bringing that to the light and bringing all these disgusting things to the light helps people be able to have the strength to talk about something that they would rather never talk about. And so one of the things that I liked so much about um, her lecture was the fact that she said we have to be able to stray away from these things that we call distractions. So she says that distractions are things where we question the the survivors of sexual assault. You know, we question them them saying things like, you know, where were you? Why were you the why were you doing this? Why were you wearing that? You know, kind of these interrogative things that make them feel uncomfortable in our questioning the validity of their narrative. Rather than what we have to do is be we have to be able to tackle on the question of how uh, as we uh, how can we as a society make women and um, survivors of sexual assault, because survivors of sexual assault can be them as well, and non-binary people, how can we make them feel more comfortable and more open about talking about their own experience when the time is necessary? Um, and, and part of that is is to be truthful and to be ca candid. She also talked about her time, you know, being in being in the movement as well. She started that movement um, roughly like a decade ago when she was working in public schools in where in was it like selma yeah selma alabama in the south um and she said that while she's working in the public schools in selma alabama she says 25 to 80 percent of the young girls there were sexually assaulted those were young girls of color and shit and that was just like a horrifying statistic as i remember the crowd almost gasping um when they heard that that kind of statistic and it was it was a horrifying statistic to me as well because I didn't, I knew the situation was so horrific, but I didn't know the extent of how bad it could be. The fact that you have essentially almost everybody in, in that public school being sexually assaulted at some time. And so she talked about how Me Too, that movement formed because she wanted these young girls to be open about their sexual assault. And she said, I want to figure out a way where they can be open about it, but at the same time, not feel pressured. So they, she kind of put them in a room and gave them these sticky notes and said, if you'd been sexually assaulted, write me too on the sticky note. And then she said when she collects them all, she's just reading all these horrible, you know, notes that said me too, me too, me too. And so that's how it began. Did she did she ever talk about during the lecture how what it's like for her personally to work with something so emotionally taxing? She said, I remember her saying that she wanted the me too movement. She, she said it was kind of like a portal and that when the when the Me Too movement started, the hashtag Me Too movement started, it was like um, a portal and all these horrific, horrific people that were accused of sexual assault were randomly being put on the spotlight. And she said one day that she just wanted the portal to close because she just wanted to put an end to it. But the reality is, is that the only way for the portal to close is that, if, if, you know, we as a society kind of step up forward and kind of for everybody to say what they what they did and, and to be ever everybody to be held accountable for and for us as a society to stand up for the survivors of sexual assault and not just put the blame on them. Um, she said there's three things that we can do as people to be able to help 
um, to be able to tackle on the issue of sexual assault or just, you know, be active in our community. One is to give your time. Um, another one was there was time, there was money, and there was also to look for the gaps in areas where of your community. So if your community is doing X, Y, Z, but not this thing, then you can kind of step in and say, hey, I want to do this thing. Um, giving your time, she made this really funny, I mean, giving your money, she said she made this really funny thing. She made this really funny joke where she said, I know you guys are young, but you're in college, you know, so it means that you must have some kind of money. She said, put your money um, into areas that, into grassroots organizations that, you know, are supporting causes that you want to be able to do. And, and, and so it was just tactful like that. Another thing that I found out, and I think this is more on a personal note and just like more of like a, a writer's note, is that I found out that I, I think through this lecture there's importance in like the diversity of like a writer as well. And so I went on this um, kind of report with my colleague Rebecca Duke Weisenberg and when we, when we were reporting on this we kind of shared our notes. Um, I noticed that I was focused more on information Whereas and she's focused more on like kind of developing this story based around Tarana Burke as a woman. I feel like that's where the diversity of, of journalism needs to happen because like when you have different ethnicities, when you have different identities of a journalist covering a, a topic, they're able to see different things that you didn't, that I was just so focused on information. I was less focused on building up a narrative of who this woman was Whereas in Becky really started fleshing out and really started to create this really good narrative a lot with a lot of strong quotes on like who Tarana Burke was. So that's just kind of me rambling and mumbling about what my article, what our article was about. Let's move on to the third story. Uh, Abby, this was, this was all you. You went on Friday to a regional transit authority meeting here at UMass. You want to talk about it? So about 50 people attended a public meeting with the Task Force on Regional Transit Authority Performance and Funding on Friday evening. Um, so during this forum type meeting, uh, the task force received feedback on transportation needs in Western Massachusetts. And so the task, task force was uh, created in October 2018, and they met to talk about the regional transit authorities in Massachusetts and how they can be improved. And so they created a report on these improvements and they presented it to, to the community and received feedback on them. So one recommendation that they made was to look at a modest fare increase every three years. And so they explained that nobody wants these fare increases, but a small predictable increase is a lot less painful than an unpredictable increase. Um, they also talked about environmental sustainability and how they're urging that all buses and vans purchased after 2035 be zero emissions to try and meet the Commonwealth's climate change goals. And so there was the task force members speaking, and then they also had a lot of community members speaking, as well as elected officials. So one of the most impactful speakers, I thought, was Representative uh, Natalie Blaze, and she talked about how communities, especially in Western Mass., they need evening and weekend services. And um, just to quote her, she said, if they don't have a vehicle and you need to do your grocery shopping and you're doing it on a Saturday or Sunday, I want to know how you're going to go grocery shopping. Because people in my district who don't have a car and who are reliant upon public trans uh, transportation do not have that option. And that is not okay. We are leaving Western Massachusetts, rural Massachusetts behind when it comes to economic mobility and we need to do better. So. They just really um, made sure that Western Mass's voice was heard because, you know, in a lot of bigger cities like Western Boston, 
um, I'm sure they have more service. So it was nice to see members of the community going out there and just voicing their opinion on the subject. I know that there was, um, earlier in the year, there was a bit of a debacle with UMass Transit. Um, Will, you, you wrote a few stories about it, but did did was there anybody at this meeting that spoke from the perspective of a student here at, at UMass or yeah, had so, insight on that? Um, Robert Kearns, I believe he's a member of the SGA. He spoke about how, um, you know, he agrees with the incremental increases on the fares, but um, he hopes that this doesn't in some way pit UMass students against like low-income people of color, saying like Springfield, because they're both transit-dependent people, but there's kind of like a disparity in the fact that we have we don't have to pay fares, but they do. So that was kind of his input, and he wasn't really the only student there, so that's the only kind of student input that they got. Let's move on to an update from Catherine about the Student Government Association. Uh, this is something that's been going on for a while, but... Yeah, so it's nice to wrap it up. Um, even with the new complaints that were issued, another elections report came out at one point, and it had a few more complaints, but uh, it was Lydia Washington, who's the SGA advisor, explained, you know, the Elections Commission will avoid invalidating a ticket if at all possible. They really don't want to make this as controversial as a lot of people seem to. Uh, so Timmy Sullivan was will be sworn in as the next president. He'll serve a second year, uh, and that should be happening in the next few weeks. Um, and afterwards, you know, the case will still be in the judiciary, but I wouldn't expect any more updates from the story after this. Cool. Oh, and a few people did resign. Uh, I think one person resigned last week, uh, but there has still been a little bit of controversy, but this should be all set. It seems like a pretty abrupt ending to something that was so yeah, drawn it out. Does, it seems a bit anticlimactic, but... No, election's done with folks. All right, cool. Timmy's Hope the you enjoyed. T Timmy and Hayden. That's that's what's going to happen. Uh, let's move on to the last story. This is a fun one. Abby, you went to the Amherst Police Department, and you met up with two four-legged friends. Yeah, so uh, before spring break, Judith, our photo editor, and I, we went to the Amherst Police Department, and we met with... Officer Matthew Friedrich, as well as uh, Marvin, who is one of the dogs in their canine unit. unit. So, yeah, we just kind of sat down with Officer Friedrich, and we just learned more about their canine program, and uh, we met with Marvin, who is just the best. Um, we didn't get a chance to meet Dash, who is the second canine, or technically he's the first. But... Um, so the canine unit at the Amherst Police Department was founded in September 14th and was made possible by a canine establishment grant um, from the Stanton Foundation. And so with that, they were given $25,000 to purchase a dog. They purchased Dash from the Netherlands. Well, Dash was from the Netherlands, but then they found him at a kennel in Pennsylvania. And then three years later, they also applied again for the second uh, kind of round of the Stanton Foundation grant and that's where they are able to adopt Marvin and so basically they are both patrol dogs as well as narcotic dogs so they can track people build uh, do building searches area searches article searches evidence recovery and handler handler protection and um, so canine Marvin and canine dash they do all that really important work at the police department but some may say, even more important, the Instagram page. 
Yeah, so that's kind of how um, Judith, our photo editor, um, kind of came up with the story idea. They are some of the best posts on Instagram, not going to lie. Um, one of our favorites is Marvin running on a treadmill. I included it in the article, if you've seen it, um, where he had like a little Santa on his back and he's running to Christmas music. And yeah, he, uh, Officer Friedrich runs that page. He just started it for fun and it's kind of built up over... 5,000 followers, I believe, and yeah, it's he says it's a great way to kind of connect with other canine handlers and just uh, members of the community. Right, yeah. No, he they, he looks like a good boy. <laughs> Very Definitely. good boy. Definitely a good boy. So that looks like all the time that we have for now. It's great to have everybody uh, tune in, so make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on SoundCloud. Um, once again, I'm Mike Connors. I'm Irina Kostake. I'm Catherine Eston. I'm Alvin Bayenza. I'm Will Malice. And Abby Sharpentier. The theme music for this podcast was created by Joaquin Carood and promoted by Audio Library. Uh, make sure, to, again, to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It really helps us out. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye.